Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Hello and welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We have been doing a series. We talked about the fall. We talked about coming back. We talked about belief. And today we're discussing the blood of Christ. It's a topic that we hear a lot in the evangelical world, maybe not so much in the restored gospel, but uh, just as an example, I wanted to start out. Most of us know this man, Tony Evans. Just take a listen here. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is our Passover. The blood of, what the blood of the Lamb did in the Old Testament for Israel, the blood of Jesus does for us today. If you operate under the blood of Jesus, that is, if you operate in sync with Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, if you operate in sync with Jesus Christ, the blood covers you. Everybody here today on their way to heaven is only on their way to heaven because they're covered by the blood. When I stand before God and God were to say, Tony Evans, why should I let you into heaven? I just got one phrase, the blood. I have been covered by... There we go. Um... That was just a YouTube clip, but there's thousands, Corey, uh, of those that you can look up and hear um, various things on the blood of Christ. And so, why do you think? Um, do you think that's a topic? I, I, I haven't heard a lot of that specifically in the restoration. Do you think we shy away from it, or we just have so many other things that we find we need to focus on, or you know, ideas on that? Well, that's a good question, and I wonder that too. You know, the blood of Christ is the thing that Scripture says washes away our sin or makes us clean and it's an important topic it's probably one of the least discussed within the restoration why i don't know but uh i think we've sometimes been a little nearsighted in that we think it's all about just the kingdom returning but there is no kingdom for anyone unless our sin is washed away and the sin is washed away because of the sacrifice of jesus and if we don't understand that as the foundation we've missed the point altogether so uh, you bet. Yeah, let's talk about it, Mike. I um, There's things in the scriptures that sometimes, I don't want to use the word contradictory, but let's say that there's a scale. On one side, I see scriptures that I can hang my hat on and have hope in. And then on the other side of the scale, I also see scriptures that um, describe a certain condition that needs to be met in my heart. Um, a certain I don't know if qualification is the right word. I, I guess that's the right word. But um, uh, for instance, well, let's just take a scripture. And like in Psalms 103, uh, 7, the Lord says, He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Hmm. I hear that scripture quoted or spoken about um, a lot when it talks about the power of God forgiving us. Um, So far as the east is from the west, completely, exactly. Yeah. Um, And I want to trust in the blood of Christ. The Book of Mormon speaks about it so much. Um, But then there's other scriptures that say... um, uh, no unclean thing can enter into heaven. And, and Jesus, when he came down, he took, like you, uh, we talked about in class today, he took, he took the Old Testament laws and, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery and, and uh, took them a step further, thou shalt not look upon a woman to lust after her. Uh, he really took it up a notch, you know, it's not enough not to murder, but you can't be angry with your brother. And when we look at the blood of Christ and we, we see these scriptures that says that, you know, through this we are going to be able to be entered into the kingdom at the same time, it seems like we need to be uh, performing or living a life such that there's certain sins that aren't within us, that we're not doing certain things. And so when I fall into those sins, then I wonder, well, is the blood of Christ going to cleanse me from those sins? Or does do the fact that I still have these sins inside me trump the blood of Christ? Because evidently, you know, what he did on the cross wasn't enough to, to uh, motivate me to stop sinning and be a better person. And so are these sins on me or not? And that's, that's the, you go back and forth as you read through the scriptures of hope and then condemnation, hope, condemnation. Maybe that's not the right word either, but you probably see where I'm going with that. Sure. Well, I think, one of the things that's important to remember through all of this is our, in our life, you know, it's that enduring to the end and this idea that God asks us to forgive our neighbor when they sin against us seven times 70 or, you know, an unlimited number of times, I think speaks to the fact that he is also even more willing to forgive us anytime we repent. Um, that doesn't give us a license to sin. However, the blood of Christ atones for our imperfection. I, I don't believe we can ever come to a state in this life where somehow we're beyond needing a Savior. That's why we needed a Savior. Uh, and when we discuss this blood of Christ, you know, I think it it actually begs a few foundational questions just as why why Christ and how and what is that all about? And and we hear these words like grace and blood and all this stuff. What does all that mean? And and maybe even starting there helps us understand why the blood of Christ is significant for us to discuss as a as a people. Sure, sure. And I I want to state for the record, um, sometimes Corey, I'll say things, and um, I guess if people don't know me that are listening, they'll be like, "Boy, this guy has no faith or no <laughs> no no gospel background at all." But what I try to do is I, I think back over my life at times when I had questions. Uh, and some of these questions I do still have. Some of them I just toss around in my mind a lot, and maybe I'm not you know, solidified on everything. But I try to bring these things up thinking about a variety of people that are at different points in their life and their walk with the Lord. And so as I pose questions to you and you pose them back to me, it's, it's through the discussion that I just want to stimulate people's minds, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work, give them thinking, you know, things to think on. And by doing that, um, hopefully we all grow together. So if I ask a question sometimes for those listening, it doesn't mean I don't believe it or I really don't understand, but I'm trying to just draw out, um, especially on Corey's knowledge, uh, some of the scriptures that um, that maybe you're having the same questions. So, 
Um, yeah, that's talk about you said the grace and the blood. Yeah, where does it, where does it all begin? You know, that's that's the basic question: is that you know why why even talk about the blood of Christ? What does it have to do with anything in our sin? And you know, somehow when we as a as a human race fell out of God's presence, and this started with one man and one woman brought condemnation. Adam and Eve's transgression brought condemnation on the whole human race where we were separated from God. That also came with a price. Sin keeps us from God, and the price of sin is infinite, and that's our problem. And I know we discussed this a little bit in the past, but maybe we can go a little deeper into it today. This idea that mankind fell out of God's presence came with a price and that price tag had this infinite, you know, that little Google thing, that sideways eight means an infinity. If you look at a price tag and you want to buy something in the store and it says $10, well, you need to find $10 out of your pocket to pay for it. Or if you had a debt and the debt was $100, how can you pay for that? Well, save $100. But if you had a debt that's infinite, how do you pay for an infinite debt? You have to have something that has infinite value. And there's only one thing in the universe that has infinite value, and that is the creator himself. Let me ask you a question when you say infinite, because when you, um, everybody goes somewhere different in their mind, I imagine. When you say that infinite, what I, what I see in my mind is instead of killing a lamb every year or every month, um, that there is one sacrifice that covers from the very first human on, on the earth till the last human is born, and that would be Jesus' sacrifice. But it, do you have a different understanding of infinite when you say that? Because it seems like there's a maybe something deeper there. Well, this idea that we are humans and we have this spiritual world maybe that we don't remember and we came down here, we are, we are finite, though, in this existence. We, we have a spirit and it came into a body, and the body lives in this finite world, and, and we don't know what in, infinite or eternity is like. We're locked into this world right now. God, the creator, is the only infinite being, literally, if we understand Scripture, um, in that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and he created this world. He, through the voice, through a word, let there be light, transformed his own energy and what that means, it's hard for us to understand. But it created this universe, the, the matter, the space and time and, and, and uh, dimensions. We, we have a physical realm that we live in now that is limited, but he came from a world that is unlimited. And he wants to bring us back to that. And the only way, somehow, through the laws of the universe that God set up for an infinite price to be paid was that the infinite one himself, God, had to step out of that time and place where he was in eternity and come into this finite time of ours in this world and, and live as we did, uh, the Spirit of God inhabiting a man. And that combination of God's Spirit dwelling in a man was was God on earth, was Jesus Christ. He he lived and died and allowed his own infinite soul to pay the price for our sin through dying in the hands of his own creation. And from that, 
it satisfied a law that said now that price could be paid so we could come back. How that, how and why that law existed, I don't know. I don't know. But but the scripture teaches that he was the only one who could do that. So um, some things we just accept. Uh, I couldn't tell you how gravity works. So just as a rock falling from my hand, hitting the ground, obeyed a law, that's as real as this law was that when man sinned, only an infinite atonement could pay for that. And whether we, I don't know that we can totally understand that. I don't know if we can even begin to understand that at all, but um, that understanding, some at some point you just have to accept something like this. This is the way God set it up. This is the law. Right. This is the path, because uh, I guess it doesn't make any more sense than how the Israelites could put their hand on a on an animal and, and slit its throat and have the blood come out and then be, you know, have their sins go on to that animal for the next year. Or I'm not up on the sacrifices. I know, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but that was the law. That was what the rule that God had. Well, so everything started with lessons God taught. And from the beginning, even with Adam and Eve, he, he taught a lesson to them before they committed the crime of sin, and that's, hey, in the day you eat from this tree, you will surely die, he said. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't fall down dead on the ground, and, and Satan had convinced Eve by asking her a question, hey, did, did God really say you were going to die? You know, he's challenging right, right. this. And so in that moment, what they discovered was death meant separation. Death meant, okay, we are now not going to live in God's presence, we are now separated from him, and that brought this plight of all mankind separation. So that was one of the first things he taught. But then he continues to teach, as Adam learns in Genesis uh, chapter 4 in the inspired version, he's offering sacrifices, and he's commanded to do this, and we don't really get that commandment other than an angel comes and says, Adam, do you understand why you're doing this? And he says, I don't know, except God told me. And the angel explains this is the similitude. This is the metaphor. This is the foreshadow. This is the the analogy of what God is going to have to do for you so that you can come back into his presence. So they lived in a, in a very crude, graphic, violent, almost world of reminders by slaying animals and having their sin symbolically transferred by literally placing their hand on its head while while the animal dies to remind them of what God was going to have to do. But And this is the beautiful part of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon teaches this, that these sacrifices, these atonements of animals could never pay the price. They were just symbols to teach. And so in the Book of Mormon, Alma uh, 16, uh, he explains it is expedient that an atonement should be made for according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. So if there wasn't an atonement, we could never be back with God again. There was no way we could beg it. We could ask as much as we wanted, but we couldn't step around the justice that was ours, right? That was facing us. All were hardened, all were fallen, all were lost, says Alma 16, 209 and would perish except this atonement would be made. So the verse continues, and here's where it explains something very, very important. 
For it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. Now, this was speaking from a person who lived in the Book of Mormon days before Jesus died on the cross. So he's speaking as if it's yet to come. That there should be a great and last sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl. For it shall not be a human sacrifice. So right here, even though we consider Jesus a man, he wasn't. It wasn't human. It wasn't human. It was the Spirit of God inhabiting a body. And it explains it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. There was only one person, to use the term, in the, in the, in the whole creation who was infinite and eternal, and that was God himself. No other sacrifice, no sacrifice, nothing. I, I couldn't die for you, Mike, and have your, your sins paid for. You know, we, all the sheep in the world, all the goats, all the oxen on all the altars in Israel couldn't be enough to pay for our sin. It had to be coming from one who was infinite and eternal. So infinite and eternal may, um, there's more meaning than just linear. It's not, it's not just a matter of, um, you no longer have to do this every year because this is infinite and it covers all of time, but it's, it's deeper than that even. if I, I, Sometimes I view things like laid out in a linear uh, way, but it's different than that, right? It's not just being yeah. from day one until day 2,500 or however many days we're on the earth, the sacrifice covers all of that. When you say eternal, that's that's something that we're not even talking about time any longer. It's It's more of a... <laughs> There's a dimension and a depth there that's, well, it just goes beyond time. And sometimes I think maybe I have in the past looked at just this eternal and infinite as, as this linear time thing, and it's greater than that. Right. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say for sure because Scripture doesn't give us a lot of understanding, but when you consider that God, the, the, the uh, early chapters of Genesis state that God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. He is dwelling with Adam and Eve, or at least maybe the other way to say it is they were qualified to be in his presence. What Mm -hmm. state of life that is, we don't know. But this point is actually that the sin occurred in that state. The sin occurred in a state where they were still with God. It's not like they were already away from God. So it's like they committed a sin in eternity. If God is there, you know, one of the things the Doctrine and Covenants mm. teaches is that, hey, when God is present, there is no time. There's no time no longer. So, so they, they were, there was no time as we know it when they sinned. Golly, a whole different type of dwelling. Right, right. right. So their sin, in a, in a sense, was almost in this eternal world of, of God, even though it was on earth. And I know it's kind of blending two ideas, but the point is it happened in his presence, literally, and that separated them from the presence of God. And the only one who could go back after them was God himself. <laughs> That's because uh, there was no, uh, yeah, they, they weren't going to die. They were, there was no uh, one day after the next after the next. No, they but were, that created this temporal realm right. where death now became the reality, a temporal death. And so he had to reach through that dimension from eternity into, um, into time, into this new existence outside of his presence, and pull them back in. Exactly, exactly. Through his blood, for whatever reason, taking on flesh and blood, becoming human, and then giving up his own will to the will of his creation, all of that uh, ties up into this sacrifice. And that's where I think I've asked you this question before, well, why... Why that? Why couldn't they recite a, a prayer or a verse? And he says, that will bring you back in. Just say these words. There was something much 
much more. And blood, when he created us, um, and, and we talk about blood, it's amazing in the medical world when you look at blood and how many different types of cells and are involved within blood that have functions that give life, that fight off disease. Mm. Even on a microscopic level, you, you could call that sin. Um, blood, so there's something about blood that just, um, you, you know, you've got a certain amount in your body, and if it pours out through a cut or through an opening after you start to feel dizzy and then you die, um, you need it. It's pumping. It's doing all of these things, carrying oxygen, that blood somehow, by him spilling that blood, covers our sin. And yet, I have the, I guess, in the same question, if I go to bed at night and and I'm angry at a brother and I die in my sleep, you know, so what, what does that leave me in the sight of God? Mm. Well, you know, I, I feel, again, that when we repent, God's willing to forgive. There, there's a notion, and I think, there's some misunderstanding in the notion that um, God had to die in order to forgive us. And that isn't really what the point is. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned and they were outside of the garden, God has conversations with Adam. And we find in later chapters of Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, in these conversations, God says, hey, I already forgave you your sin in the garden. Even before Adam asked, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a question of can God forgive me? It was a question of, was the penalty paid? And the penalty had to be paid for us to be able to find ourselves on the right hand of God. And, and the sins that he died for were the sins of all mankind from the beginning. Now, that, that doesn't give us a license to sin, but it lets us know that there is hope that if we're still striving, if we're still turning our lives towards him, and, and we came to him with sincerity, you know, with the scriptures say a broken heart, a contrite spirit. That means it's also that when the scriptures say, don't take God's name in vain. In other words, it, there's also a understanding I had as a child that that somehow meant don't use a four letter word in front of the word right. G-O-D. It has nothing connected to that, although don't do that either. <laughs> but the but the the idea is when you take God's name, you're making a covenant and don't do that in vain. Don't do that and not mean it. So for, and and the, I was just reading earlier today how uh, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about the disciples, when they welcomed people into the church through baptism, it states, they accepted none to be baptized, save they had come with a broken heart and contrite spirit, willing to confess their sin. So when we come to the Lord and we've made a covenant, and that's that's our game plan, that's our our, our firmness, we're, we're determined to do His will, you know, we are going to mess up from time to time. But if we still have this determination... I think the blood covers that. I, I really, really do. I, 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 it's kind of like, how can you say that, well, I had five sins and, and you had six, so I made it and you didn't. It's like sin is sin and needs to be washed away. And, and in, in the end, this is why judgment comes back to this can only be a, a righteous way to judge. God is the righteous judge, but he looks at the attitude of our heart. In the end, all Scripture comes down to this. The attitude of our heart, was it that we wanted to change? Did we want that uh, spirit to wash us and, and make us new and, and to cleanse us? Because that's what the power of the spirit can do. It, it, it can change our heart. Or did we just want to be this old person who loves all the things of the world and we don't really want the Savior? You, so he, you mentioned that he told Adam um, before, he said, I've already forgiven you. Right. 
Well, and Christ on the cross also said a prayer that made me ponder at one time when he says, um, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yeah. And, and my mind goes to like, but none of these people were on their knees saying, oh, please forgive us. So it's like, well, where does Christ, Christ has the ability to say forgive them even when they weren't asking for forgiveness. So something happens there. And then, you know, Jack shared uh, when he was on here, when he talked about um, that experience where he went in front of the Lord and said, you know, you know, forgive me, I should have done better. And he said, don't you know, Jack, I've already forgiven you. And mm. so, and we did talk about this uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, it's not that they can't forgive you, but it's it's the the price that sin plays on our heart that it makes us uncomfortable to be in God's presence, that we, we will want the rocks to fall on us if we haven't, um, I guess, desired or put ourselves in a place where the blood can cover us and we know that we're cleansed. Um, yeah, yeah. This is such a mystery to me, Corey, that... Um, because I, you say things like, and then in my mind, I'm like, well, but if if I did have the attitude that I wanted to follow the Lord and I wanted to overcome these things, then why would I still be uh, angry at my brother? Wouldn't the Lord look at me and say, that's not your desire? Because if you desired it, I would have delivered you from that. Mm-hmm. But then there's other things that that make me think there's always that opposition. There's always going to be that um, that temptation to fall while we're in the flesh, and and that sometimes we give into that. Is, is that allowed? Is that part of the plan? Is, is that common to all human beings, or is that just something, you know, that Mike struggles with? And- well, you know, I, that's a good question, and maybe the answer is found in how did Jesus teach us to pray. You know, part of the Lord's Prayer in, includes praising him and, and asking for the things we need, but it also says to pray that we will not be led into temptation, or as uh, one way it's stated, suffer us not to be mm-hmm. led. And so... This idea that we would have to pray continually to not be led into temptation indicates that there's always going to be temptation. It isn't that we arrived once and now we're free. And I think that's one of the important things to know in our Christian walk is that it takes diligence, it takes endurance, and it takes being ready to fight the good fight every day. You know, try to overcome evil with good and and know that, hey, if you get knocked down, get back up. You know, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. But this um, doesn't mean that we are okay to sin by any means. It simply means that if sin does occur, you know, we've got a loving Father who is not about to turn his back on us. The The issues of sin become more apparent where people who refuse to have any part of him, that the scriptures, I think, are clear that there are some who knew his power and totally turned away, and, and they become called perdition. Um, the angels who fell with Satan are part of that group, in fact, the Book of Mormon states. But this idea that you could be a partaker of God's power and then totally turn your back, I think that's much more serious than someone who's, who slips in, in, in their daily walk but then resumes the course. Um, I, I do take some comfort in the story that's found in Alma 19 where Alma's speaking to all of his sons, and then he has one son who was supposed to be on the missionary circuit with him and instead is found chasing a harlot. And in that the context of that story is some beautiful doctrine, but what's interesting about this is that this young son of Alma committed serious crime, and a crime in which our day, we have told people, well, you know, you committed this sin of adultery, so you know, you're kind of done. At least we're, we're putting you on the sideline now for ministry, and what happens in this story is pretty profound because after 
Alma gets done explaining some of the most beautiful scripture and doctrine about life after death and this atonement. He's, you know what he says to his son? He says, okay, now get back to the ministry. Yeah. He, um, yeah, that's... And, 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 and to add to that, you know, the Lord will chastise us. And the, and the thing, the penalty, just, just a thought to add to that, the penalty for sin when we know we shouldn't is, is ultimately this. We separate ourselves from his spirit. You know, we know what it's like to walk in darkness if we don't come to Christ. But we can walk in darkness, too, if we willingly sin. You know, the scriptures say it's harder to come back to God. We create we create thought patterns and in, in life uh, attitudes that when we fall into sin, you know, if, if I want to continually turn to um, lustful things on the Internet or things that fulfill my lusts physically by the things I would view or something, um, that creates a pattern which is hard to break. It's a stronghold. And so we have to be really cautious to, to well, you know, to not fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I sin, I for, I've just asked forgiveness and that's it. Because that pattern in and of itself will create this stronghold which will further our separation from God. And it isn't like, hey, I've always got this, you know, I can pass go, I can, I'll always get $200, I'll always kind of start over again. But it's not that way because of the weakness of our carnal state. Yeah, um, playing around with sin, that, that's one understanding the Lord helped me with. Uh, at some point it was, it was just made so clear to me that it's, it's not about you coming to me and asking for forgiveness. It's, it's not about me forgiving you. The, the question is, can you seriously repent? Can you seriously get to a point in your life where you want to give that sin up, where you no longer want a part of it? Because, like you said, after so many times of playing with fire, you're going to get burned. After so many times of doing these things that the stronghold comes into your life, it's not a matter of God forgiving you. And that's maybe that's where that conversation, don't you know I've already forgiven you? The right. problem is you no longer want to repent, and I have nothing more I can do with you. So, yeah, exactly. that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, okay. So that's becoming, I'm glad that, that we just, that's becoming more clear, yeah. Yeah, it's really not an issue with any of humanity, of God sitting in heaven saying, well, I've decided to forgive you guys, but I can't forgive the rest of you. I think he's willing and probably has forgiven everyone. The whole point is what you just mentioned. Are we willing to repent and turn and, and follow now oh, because so, of that? So, Corey, let me read this scripture to you. And it's in Mosiah 1, 1 And at the beginning, let me pull up the actually in context here. Um, Mosiah 1, 1 says, For behold, as in Adam by the nature they fall, even so the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. Yep. But as you read on and get to like verse 118, but men drink damnation to their own souls except they humble themselves and become as little children and believe that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord omnipotent. Wow. So now we don't just have this um, fact that Christ atones for our sins. Adam fell. The blood of Christ atones for my sins, but there's that's the other part of the scale. There is conditions, and it says that we drink damnation to our own souls. Not mm-hmm. that God is condemning us and damning us. Not that Christ says, I didn't come to condemn you, but we drink damnation to our own souls, except we humble ourselves and become as little children. And that little children don't continue in sin when... Um, 
when they're shown a better way, you know, little children uh, want to please their parents. I mean, there's so many things that are wrapped up in that becoming as little children, little children are stubborn and selfish, especially toddlers. And that's all they know. But there's also that other part to little children that um, they don't have that rebellious, wicked spirit within them yet. And so we have to somehow find that way to come back to our father, to want to climb up in his lap as a little child and say, just, I just want to be with you. I just want to be in your presence. And, and uh, we damn our own souls. It says, except we do that. And so, that's interesting. This this is actually helping me get some things straight in my mind. Uh, <laughs> well, me too. Me too. Blood, God, it says Christ atoned for our sins, mm. but we drink damnation to our own soul by continuing in in behavior that separates us from God. And he says, I've forgiven you, but you no longer can repent. You no longer can return to me because you've continued in this sin for so long. You've drunk damnation to your own soul. Right. You know, wow. Mike, you touched on... A beautiful thought there, and this, I think, one of the answers comes back to what the rest of Mosiah said. in In that context, you read the hundred twentieth verse talks about, but if we yield to the enticings of the spirit, and and put off the natural man, we we become in this state where we can we can yield and we can we can do better, we can we can improve, and we can, you know, is it possible to resist every sin? The answer is definitely yes. And here's one of the reasons why, and this comes from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 92, verse 1a, in the RLDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and this is a, a beautiful life principle and this beautiful gift that he's given us, and it's just a gem right here. It says, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love, I also will chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For now, And this is the part I love. For with the chastisement, I prepare a way for your deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. I prepare a way for your deliverance in all things out of temptation. And I stopped and considered that one time, and I thought, does that really mean what it says it is, that every time I'm tempted to do sin, that there's actually a way out? In other words, if, if I'm faced with something in the road in front of me that I'm tempted to do, that there's there's the ability to turn away in every condition, every situation. And I think the answer is eternally, yes, there is. And, and that's where growth occurs. That's where strength occurs. When we in that moment become determined that, no, I see this sin, and we can call on the Father and say, Lord, can you show me the deliverance out of this? Can you show me the way where I can say no to temptation? You know, And sometimes it's, can I have strength so my finger on my mouse on my computer does not click on that website or does not go there? Or can I have strength that my words don't come out of my mouth? And even more so, can I have strength so my thoughts won't think those words, you know, or or so my my soul won't have those thoughts so those thoughts don't become those words? Mm. He says, I can prepare a way for your deliverance in all things out of temptation. So that tells me that there is no temptation out there to which we have to succumb. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have to. If we know the key that we can call on him in the very moment, show me the path out. Is it to the left? Is it to the right? Is it up or down? Is it turn around and go backwards? But there's always a way out. Now, man, my mind is is spinning now, Corey. Um, it's almost like we you can't even hardly talk about this without bringing in the Holy Spirit and... Um, and that indwelling presence that Christ promised. You know, he gives us the commandment to love one another as I have loved you. 
And he says, after he says, keep my commandments if you love me. And then it says, I pray that a comforter will come that will mm-hmm. be given to you mm-hmm. um, to help us. And, and in Moroni, the eighth chapter, there's a process here in verse 29. It says, the very first fruits of repentance is baptism. And baptism comes by faith, and it fulfills the commandments, and it brings a remission of sins. The remission of sins then brings meekness and lowliness of heart. And because of the meekness and the lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, Mm -hmm. which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love, which love endureth by diligence unto prayer. And you mentioned prayer just a little bit ago. Until the end shall come when all the saints shall dwell with God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may be that when there's a way provided out of that um, temptation, that it doesn't mean that at that moment you pray to God and he shows you the way, but it's due to your diligence in prayer that you have that spirit dwelling within you that allows you to make those choices at that moment. And, and exactly. so if you haven't put exactly. the work in, those prayers can have no energy, no, just fall on. Right. And he's like, I can't, but you've been praying to me diligently. And I've got to admit, you know, I spent, when I spent a year traveling around with, with my brother, Adam, that's probably the closest I've ever had to a prayer life where we would pray together in the morning, pray together at night, pray together in the middle of the day. And I mean, on our knees together. And then multiple times throughout the day and before visits and with people. And I remember a time when it was Halloween night. We were on our knees praying for the youth group there in uh, Woodbine, Iowa. And I remember praying back and forth. He would pray, and then I would pray. And, and that must have went on. I, I know it wasn't 30 minutes. I know it was longer than that. That must have went on for close to an hour maybe. Mm-hmm. And I just felt this love and these words given for these kids. And we prayed for them in their life, and it was a supernatural thing. It was so beautiful. But that, um, that didn't just happen because we just – dropped to our knees one day, but right. because we had been practicing and being diligent in prayer, the Holy Spirit was able to do that. Um, wow. You know, that's that's totally, totally it right there, is that if you continue in sin, you you cut off your access in a, in a way of saying mm-hmm. to the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that gives you the guidance out of temptation. You know, the, the Book of Mormon's got beautiful, beautiful understanding to share. If we'll just open its pages... What's profound is also found in Moroni 7, 14. For behold, it says, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man. Now, think about that. That means not just the Spirit of Christ is given to everyone who gets baptized, but the Spirit of Christ is given to every person who comes into the world. You know, Mussolini and Hitler and uh, whoever else, these people can either choose to listen and cultivate that, avenue of communication between the spirit and our soul, or we can choose to shut it off. And and the reason it says the spirit is given is so that we can know good from evil, so that we can know to judge the things that invite to do good or persuade to believe in Christ or the things that will separate us. There's a basic understanding, even before we come to Christ, that God gives us, and that's that ability to judge. Now, if we ignore it, you know, we have less and less light. We have less and less understanding. If we cultivate it, we get more and more to where we, we have, and, and sometimes it, it, it becomes these words that we use, like the still, small voice. You know, you're faced with temptation, but you know in the back of your head, okay, I need to not do that. I need to not say that. Sometimes that's what we use to, to describe it, but that's what it means. It means 
you will be guided in every situation to know right from wrong. And, and there won't be any confusion. And a friend of mine once gave me some great life advice, and it was simply this. When in doubt, don't. You know, and it's like, you know, you think that can work in about 99% of our life situations. If you're not sure about something, don't do it, you know? And, and so, Hey, what, what a great axiom, uh, to, but this whole idea that, um, we have to sin. No, we don't have to sin. And the, and the way is given, the way is prepared. This beautiful, uh, example that Christ gave to Adam spells out three things that you touched on starting with baptism. In Genesis 6, it states something uh, to, to this effect that when we, or when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, we, we fell out of God's presence. And so that by God's voice, he, he calls out to us to hearken to his voice and to believe. And if we repent, if we turn to him and make a covenant, then he promises to do three things, really. One is he, he gives us the Holy Ghost, and he will give us the Holy Ghost, and that helps, this is the scripture say, justify us or make us spiritually righteous. He, he promises to wash away our sin and, and you know, so that our, our past is not only clear, but our, our future hope can be clear and clean that we can stand on his right hand if we endure to the end. But he also then promises by that Holy Spirit to guide us all the rest of the days of our life. So, so we get an atonement, you know, the, the, the covering, the, the promise of his comforter, but the guidance that, that comes through that covenant. And that's the only way we make it. That's why the, the Israelites, they lived in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around, and they were guided by these laws and rules. They were trying to get to the promised land. Well, that 40 years represented, uh, the 40 is the spiritual number for transformation, as we discussed and, and that represents our life. You know, when we wander in this life, the, the idea is we want to get to the promised land, this, this land uh, of uh, eternity, if you will. What gets us there is, is, one, have we made a covenant with Jesus? Have we asked for his spirit to be with us, to guide us? And then through that, will that guide us in our judgments day to day, in our decisions? And so when we're faced with temptation, will we know when to say yes and know when to say no? God said to Adam, and this is Genesis 6, 55, the Lord said to Adam, behold, I've forgiven you your transgressions in the Garden of Eden. You know, isn't that something he's, and that was before Adam even asked. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't that God, that we somehow had to merit the favor of God to forgive us. That really isn't the point. Grace means that God chose to step into this world as the book, the tiny little book of Titus in the New New Testament explains, that God chose on his own accord to step into time from eternity on our behalf. That's what grace means. Being saved by grace doesn't mean that there's nothing I have to do. It means there's nothing I could have done. He chose. He chose to intervene. But then it becomes incumbent upon us, okay, so will you respond? Will you choose to turn from sin? Will you choose to follow this spirit? Will you choose to let that spirit guide you day by day? And if you do, the sum total is you'll find that all your sin has been washed white by the blood of Jesus. Then you stand on his right hand and you spend eternity with him. That's what it comes down to. There's a um, a scripture in Romans. Tell me what 
what you think of this, of course. It says when he's talking about Jesus, God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That word propitiation, um, I was looking up the definition. It, it It's really not super deep. It just means to set right, um, to make uh, good on something that we did wrong. Um, it means to appease is the Latin verb. It says to mean, it means to appease. So we look at that scripture and, um, says God set forth to appease through faith in his blood. Or First John says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yep. What, what's that mean? So, again, we're talking about the blood and, and, and that death, Christ dying, that was it. That was the atonement. That that means we are set right as long as we do our part to become as little children and, and not continue in sin and, and reach out to him, I guess. Well, some of that, I think, gets back to what we've stated, that the price of sin demanded a payment. And when Christ appeased that propitiation word, he appeased the requirement of justice. Mm. In other words, this whole idea, uh, the Book of Mormon puts it in a beautiful picture. It says, he stands between us and justice. Mosiah 8, 37, Abinadi's last words before they kill him for stating that God himself would come down to this earth. He describes Christ as standing between us and justice. He was the one who appeased the demands. And And it simply states this, he stands between us and justice having broken the bands of death, taking upon himself the iniquity and transgression of the world, having redeemed us and satisfied the demands of justice. So that appeasement means, hey, you know, if you appease something or, or if something was, uh, you know, someone was really mad, but you appeased them somehow, you, you did something to, to, to neutralize that anger. It was the blood of Jesus which appeased the demands of justice. Justice was screaming that all these humans are now removed from the presence of God. And God saying, no, I created them in my image. That's why when Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to this world to condemn the world. I came to save the world. That was his mission is because from the beginning, he realized that justice was going to keep us, his finest creation, away from him forever. And there was nothing we could do about it. He, he wanted us to share in the eternity of his world, but the only way he could do it was to come down into the finite nature of ours and, and, and become the, the sacrifice. Uh, this idea in the Old Testament where Moses builds this tabernacle in the wilderness and, and he talks to God in there, but it's just a tent and there's a veil and the people can't see inside. That represents heaven and this sacrifice was outside the tent in the courtyard. Well, that represents the earth. And these animals had to be slayed on the altar, and then their blood carried inside the tent and dripped on this mercy seat where forgiveness was asked. And they did this every year, and they did it in multiple ways. But the idea was always there that a sacrifice had to be made in the altar of this world and so that the demands could be taken back and satisfied at the seat of his mercy. The only way mercy... The only way mercy could be applied was that the penalty was paid, and it could only happen by him offering his own blood for us. 
there's a there's a scripture in a in the Book of Mormon and Alma that says that God was angry because we don't understand the mercy. Um, and in Mosiah, the scripture we already talked about when it, when it talked about drinking damnation to our own souls, except we humble ourselves, become as little children. And then this says, and believe, believe that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ. And the other scripture we read was to have faith in the blood. So if we don't have that belief, what, what does that belief? So there's, there's a belief in the blood of Christ that, that God wants us to understand how important that is because he says that it even made him angry when we don't understand of his mercies. And everything leading up to that scripture in the Book of Mormon um, is all about prayer and understanding that God is merciful to us. And it says over and over, because of thy son, because of the son, because of the son, and man will not understand of the mercies of God because of the Son. So what happens in our life, or there has to be some type of deliverance in exercising faith, which means we don't have a knowledge yet, we don't know this to be true, but exercising faith that the blood of Christ atones for my for my sins. That must mean that the opposite is, is that even though I may not admit it or even be aware of it, that somehow I'm carrying around either guilt or some types of thoughts about myself or others that, that I'm too wicked or I'm too evil to be with God. Um, those type of thoughts really, I believe, keep us down and keep us from moving forward. Because if God's commanding us to do this, there has to be an opposite that we're caught up in, right? We don't believe. We don't have faith in the blood. We don't understand the blood. And that, that leads to us not uh, being able then to have salvation because it's, it's the belief in that that delivers us. Sure, sure. I, I think some of that is, is tricks of Satan. He knows how to manipulate humans in this condition. And, uh, and, and, and there's a complex interaction between our spirit and our body that we don't understand where, where even as a friend I know once was, was kind of told through some spiritual counsel that, the very foods he was eating was causing him to kind of be depressed from time, you know, through his life. And, and this, um, it, it brings up things which I, I don't have a lot of answers for, but I know that Satan understands what it means to be human, a spirit locked in the flesh, and he, he knows the ways to bring despair. And, and perhaps some of those whisperings are simply his effective tools and whispering into our soul saying, hey, you don't have a chance, Mike. You, 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 you aren't good enough. And when the truth is, it's a beautiful thing when we consider the scriptures that say all have fallen short and none are worthy of God. So here we are, right? Mm -hmm. And so Satan can't use that one on us because we can turn back to him and say, I know I'm unworthy. I know I've fallen short, but I have a Savior who is worthy. I have a Savior who's infinite and eternal. Right, and the trick would be then to say, well, I'll show you how worthy I am. And then we go out and try to be better and try to be good. And and you try to serve and you try to reconcile your relationships with people. And all that glorifies God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. You know, I was, when you were sharing the scripture about uh, the propitiation and that word appease, you know, that word is exactly the word that's used a little bit later in Alma 19. This is this very dialogue that Alma's having with his wayward son. And he's talking about this plan of mercy And he explains in the 97th verse of the 19th chapter of Alma, he says, now the plan of mercy, okay, this whole whole plan by God to allow us to come back to him is the plan of mercy. 
The plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy. And here it is, to appease the demands of justice. And, the, and, and the, you, you shared the definition of that, mm-hmm. that long P word. It means to appease. And here's that exact word used. The plan of mercy was to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect and just God and a merciful God also. So this is, this is the balance. We have the justice of God on one hand. We have the mercy of God on the other hand. And Jesus is standing in the middle, and he's saying, which way do you want to go? And the, and the door is through me. You choose me, and my blood covers your sin, mm-hmm. and it's washed away. Or you face the demands of justice. In the Old Testament, if you didn't take part in that sacrifice, you know, if you didn't put your hand on it, or you didn't or weren't present when the priest put his hand on it, you know, for the for the nation, for the people, if you said, I don't want any part of that, well, that sacrifice didn't atone for you. You you accepted justice, you accepted the price of your own sin. And this is the challenge of this world is that if we don't come to Christ, the only option left is that we accept justice, and that means our sins will eternally separate us from him. So there's no way it could possibly wash, be washed away except through the blood of Jesus. That's why it's so important. Well, brother, I, f- I feel like we've thrown a lot out there, and, and I almost see like there's space for another... Um, yeah, we need to keep keep going on it. I know, uh, I know there's... Uh, I know you've done some work on a grace... And, and works and um, and I would like to maybe in the next episode talk about maybe some misconceptions about the blood, maybe some differences um, versus easy grace or easy. Sure, um, there's still some things to clear up. I think that that yeah, because people- we're definitely judged by our works. Ultimately, mm-hmm. this whole idea that is a little incorrect in the world is that because there's grace, I don't have to do anything. I just have to say I believe. But belief means we have to be determined to do as will. And because the reality through all the books of Scripture is that we become judged by our works, and the works represent the attitude of our heart. It's not that our works could save us, but we should probably spend some time going into the Scriptures that explain what that means. 